Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in our study of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 9, and we'll be starting in verse 15. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Len, would you please lead us? Certainly. Holy Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for uh, just your omnipresence that we know that according to your word that you are with us right now as we uh, begin this study. And I uh, pray you be with Mark. Just enlighten him uh, with uh, teaching. His teachings have been incredible, uh, opening our eyes to to the truths in the gospel. And I pray you do that again tonight and every night that we have these studies. Uh, please bless him and uh, fill him with your spirit and fill us with uh, a listening spirit as well as we hear these words. Thank you for all the great things that are happening in your world. And, and uh, you know, things are rough and tumbling and turbulent right now, but, God, you're working, and we can see your hand in all these things. God, I thank you and prayers all, praise you and pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, Glenn. That was beautiful prayer. Welcome. Yes, it's good to be with you. Uh, I take absolutely no credit for... Anything I have said on any of these podcasts, but uh, I am very grateful to those who have brought back the gospel. We are studying the letter to the Hebrews, and we've got down to chapter 9, verse 15, and we're just going to uh, pick right up there at verses 15 through 22 in chapter 9, please. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. 
In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Great. Thank you so much. Now, verse 15 is picking right up where verse 14 left off because it says, for this reason also, and the reason that has just been pointed out is that the blood sacrifices under the Old Covenant could take care of sin. As far as the ancient Israelites were concerned, their sins were forgiven by the ceremony on the Day of Atonement every year. but they could not do anything for a guilty conscience. This is a major point our writer has just made. But Christ's blood is able to actually cleanse our conscience. And so this is the reason mentioned here as our paragraph begins. Because his sacrifice, because of his pure sinless life, to find a human being who could follow the law of Moses completely, sinlessly, was even more difficult than finding a pure red heifer under the law of Moses, which was incredibly hard to do. And our, you know, our Zionist friends are trying to rebreed these red heifers. They're having lots of trouble. According to the rabbis, I think if they find more than six white hairs with a microscope, heifer is disqualified, but yet one of our Zionist cattle ranchers in Nebraska was trying to do this. But the idea was to find a perfect sacrifice was almost impossible. And Christ is the only one who could really be a perfect sacrifice. So this is a little bit of review to what we had earlier in chapter 9. Now, because of this sinless perfect life, of Christ as a human under the law of Moses, there has been a death effective for the redemption of all the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of their eternal inheritance. Who are those who have been called who may receive the promise of their eternal inheritance in this sense? It's those who committed transgressions under the first covenant. And so who would that be? Who was under the first covenant? The Jews. Israel. Israel, ancient Israel, right. Judeans at the end, the remnant of Israel. So those who have been called the promise of eternal inheritance. See, this is talking about all the righteous dead in Israel and and the patriarchs before them, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and Samuel, and David, and all this. And they weren't righteous because of their keeping of the law. That wasn't it. These were people who knew they could not keep the law and who were looking for the redemption that God had promised them. And they were not in God's presence after they died physically. They were, as Jesus teaches it, Abraham's bosom or paradise which briefly, I believe, was represented by the holy place or the outer part of the temple, the holy place where the seven-branched lamp stand was located, which I believe represented the tree of life uh, out of the Garden of Eden and the 
table with the showbread, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, wine that was set out for God and, and so on. It, this area under the Old Covenant represented this transitional place where some of God's glory kind of overflowed into it. Some of the earth kind of overflowed it. There was a curtain separating it from the outer courtyard, which represented earth. There was another veil that separated it from the Holy of Holies, which represented God's throne room, his presence in eternity or infinity or incorruptibility. So this is kind of a place that's halfway in between paradise, and it's where all of these righteous dead are in kind of a holding place, uh, waiting for Christ to come and redeem them. And sadly, so many uh, Christians today believe that this is still, I know I was taught this for decades, and believe that we also have to wait in a place like that after we physically die. But as our writer is going to teach us, Christ has opened all the veils that separate heaven from earth. And in the new covenant, there is no holy place. There is only the holy of holies, the city four square. But instead of one veil that's closed off, it has 12 gates open to the four corners of the earth. And all peoples of the earth are welcome to enter in. And the tree of life is there. And the water of life and the light of the world, Jesus Christ, are all there inside this city four square. So Christ's death allowed all of these people that had trusted in God for their salvation to receive the promise of their eternal inheritance, which is a place in God's presence forever. And then he goes into this lengthy thing about a covenant, and this this is a little bit problematic for scholars because the Hebrew word or Aramaic word is referring to a, a covenant, but the Greek word, if I have this straight, is referring to a will or something that happens when someone dies, the disposition of their goods and so on. And... So some scholars believe that this should be translated covenant. Some scholars believe it should be translated as will. Testament is the right word, but what does that mean? Does that mean a covenant or does that mean a will? There was a book written over 100 years ago called The Blood Covenant by a man named Trumbull. And this book answers a lot of these questions, I believe. No covenant was made in the ancient near east without blood they called it cutting a covenant they would take an animal and saw it in half and lay it on two sides and leave the blood in the middle and and the people making the covenant would walk through the blood you know as part of the ceremony and trouble goes into all this in quite gory detail in his book but blood is the part of it that is important here Even the first covenant or testament has not been ratified without blood. A covenant was valid only when death had taken place. And the animal that was killed kind of was a stand-in for both parties to the covenant. If they violated it, it was a serious matter. But he's just making the point that there was lots of blood involved in these ancient covenants. And there's blood involved in the new covenant as well. 
Moses gave all of the commandments of that first covenant to the people, and then he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant. And he also sprinkled the uh, the tent and all the vessels that were in the holy place and so on. So he sums this up as saying, according to the law, almost everything is cleansed without blood. And one translator has said you could really translate this better saying, you might say that nothing in the law didn't occur without a cleansing by blood. And that's certainly true. There's just a few exceptions in the law of Moses where cleansing occurred without the shedding of blood. Can you uh, tell us what those instances were, or is that a much bigger topic, where there was no shedding of blood? Oh, I've got a footnote here that lists them here. As an example, an impoverished Israelite might bring a tenth of an ephah, which was about four pints of fine flour, as a sin offering instead of a lamb, or even instead of the two turtle doves or young pigeons prescribed in Leviticus 5. So the poorest of the poor could bring a grain offering which would not require the shedding of blood. There's another little exception in Numbers 16 where Korah and his fellow rebels were completely destroyed, were swallowed up by the earth, and the congregation of Israel received atonement by incense instead of blood. There's another exception in Numbers 31 where metal objects captured in war were to be purified in fire. And, well, it's a Hebrew word. I have no idea what it means. Medide. So I don't know what that means. And then a uh, last exception occurs in Numbers 31, where the Israelite commanders fighting against Midian brought in all the gold objects that they had captured in order to make atonement for ourselves before Yahweh. So those are the ones that are more easily found. There are obviously exceptions and not the rule. They're very rare compared to the blood that flowed daily in the tabernacle and then later the temples where the final temple after being rebuilt by Herod had a like a seven or eight foot diameter concrete culvert to carry the blood down from the altar into the Kidron Valley where it was eventually washed into the Dead Sea, which is kind of appropriate. All right, well, I was able to find the answer. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we see here that a big part of the redemption that Jesus brought was for Israel, and this is extremely consistent with what we saw over and over as we examined the book of Acts, where Paul boldly stated that his gospel was nothing but the hope of Israel. Or sometimes he would use the resurrection as a synonymous term for the hope of Israel. And Christian teachers today completely gloss over this and completely, you know, miss it. And our dispensational friends are really out in the dark on this as well. Because the redemption of the sins of ancient Israel was the resurrection of Israel, bringing them back to life. They were dead in their sins before God. Through the redemptive work of Christ, they were made alive. But then as part of this, as we looked at in laborious detail in the book of Acts, to provoke 
Israel to jealousy. God opened up the gates and allowed all of the nations to join into the newly transformed spiritual Israel, which our writer is going to close with a really good exposition on the spiritual nature of the restored and resurrected kingdom of God, which was only represented in shadow form by ancient physical Israel. And again, the historical conflict between Calvinism and Arminianism is based, sadly, on taking these passages out of context where the chosen ones are referring to ancient physical Israel, old Israel, and it's not talking about people being individually chosen exclusively, particularly in the book of Romans, and certainly not here in Hebrews. Those who were chosen, it's talking about those, the righteous remnant out of ancient Israel. So I believe if we looked at all these passages in context, we could harmonize the Arminian school and the Calvinist school on this uh, divisive issue. They both are partially right and uh, partially wrong. All right. The nature of this new covenant in this paragraph is an eternal covenant. There are examples, of course, when the old covenant was called eternal or forever, but scholars have pointed out for years that this idea of forever under the law of Moses is actually literally translated to the age. In other words, for the duration of the age, which is translated as forever. And so we know that the age ended. We know this is the exact question that the disciples asked Christ on the Mount of Olives right after he had pronounced the seven woes upon the Pharisees, had proclaimed to them that their house was left to them desolate, and then told the shocked disciples who viewed the temple as the very center of their existence that, let me tell you guys, there's not one stone that's going to be left standing on another. And they go, Lord, what will be the sign of your presence and of these things happening and of the end of the age? And, it, you know, it's in a little different order in the, in the different Gospels. But when the temple was destroyed, it was, of course, the end of the age and end of the Old Covenant, which depended on the temple ceremonies, the constant shedding of blood. And when that ended, the age ended, as they were well aware when they asked Jesus Mark. the question. Yeah. Yeah, so the question was uh, about the forever, what that verse, what word is that that we can look into, because that sounds like a major issue in in what we're talking about, whether it's forever or to the end of the age, a question I have in my mind. Yeah, well, when you're trying to reason with a dispensationalist, the meaning of that word forever is extremely important because their whole system of theology and worldview is based on what promises made to Israel forever actually mean. So, again, I would suggest that oftentimes that word could be translated to the age, which really means to the end of the age. And it fits so nicely with, again, what the apostles asked on the Mount of Olives when they understood that 
Jesus coming to destroy the temple would be the end of the age because they could not continue to follow the covenant given through Moses once the altar and the priests and the offerings were all swept away as happened in A.D. 70. All right, I'm trying to find an example of that word here. Well, I thought we had it at least once in this paragraph. Maybe we don't. Well, we'll, we'll uh, somebody call my attention to it when we run into that word forever here in the English. And then I've got Strong's, which will immediately give us the meaning. But it's not here in this paragraph like I thought it was. But it is a, it's very important. You're exactly right. The, the meaning of that word is uh, very, very important in differentiating the old and the new covenant. And I think that's what prompted the question as I was pointing out the eternal nature of the new covenant. And that is usually a little bit uh, different word. Okay. That's because it's in the Greek in the new covenant? Well, yeah, maybe, but I'm, I'm hoping that it's a different Greek word used to describe the forever of the law of Moses as opposed to the eternal nature of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Of course, the Messiah by Handel, we have that great quote from Isaiah, and he shall reign forever and ever, <laughs> burned into my brain. And it really is talking about forever as long as time exists and beyond in, in that case. But that was not the meaning of the words that are translated forever, usually regarding the law of Moses and the Old Covenant. And again, this whole letter is contrasting the two because it's written to people who are seriously contemplating abandoning the New Covenant to go back to just kind of relax and become good Judeans in the synagogue community again to try to avoid the unpleasantness that's breaking out amongst the disciples of Jesus Christ. They can kind of lay low, kind of forget to mention Jesus, and they think they'll be okay. And our writer is giving them 10 or 20 or 30 reasons why that would be a very foolish course of action, although in the short term, you know, it might seem expedient that over the long haul, it doesn't make any sense at all. I guess that's how you would sum up this whole letter. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I looked for forever. I did a search in this chapter. There's no word forever in Hebrews 9, but there is the word eternal. Is that a different word? Well, let's see. Where What verse is that in? That's in 15. It's in eternals in uh, 12, 14, yeah, okay. and 15. Okay, so. And there does not seem I, to be a Greek word for forever. Aeonos, uh, which is the age. See, eon is the age. An age, an eon. And so this word eternal is based on the age. So it's tied to the length of the age. But... They don't, in Strong's, they don't go into that detail. They just say perpetual, eternal, forever, everlasting world began, which is, world is a mistranslation of eon, which means age. So, see, it's to the age, eternal inheritance to the age. The age of Christ's reign is everlasting. There is no end to it. The age of Moses had a beginning and it had an end. 
and our writer is mentioning the imminent end of the old age numerous times in the course of this letter. This letter is written almost on the brink of the end of the age, somewhere between 67 and 70, and in 70 the temple was completely destroyed. In the Greek concordance I have, the word eternal is found twice uh, as eon, and then 41 times it's found as eonian, and then once imperceptible. Imperceptible, that's interesting. Once imperceptible. Okay, yeah, well, we'll leave that one exception. But you can see clearly the connection of all the other uses to the word for age, which is eon. Eonian. Right. Yeah, yeah. That helps me a lot, Mark. Sorry to digress into that discussion, but it helps me a lot because I just heard, a, you know, a lesson on the eternal and the, you know, end of the, you know, end of forever, whatever. And uh, so that had a, was a qu- raising questions in my mind, and, and I think you've helped answer that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It, again, it's a critical concept, and the length of these promises is connected to the age of the promise. The age of Moses was finite. The age of Christ is infinite. It has no end. So that's really, you know, the key to understanding it. But, again, (laughs) you run into a Zionist or a dispensationalist, they would have to have an open mind to even begin to look at that, and that's so, so hard to find. But we need to have some of these concepts straight. That's our core concept is that the age of Moses had a beginning and had an end, and it was for a specific purpose, which was to bring in the everlasting age of Christ. So to bring it back, again, the New Testament writers compare it to a dog returning to the vomit. You know, the the people that were stuck in it couldn't wait to get out of it. So why in the world would you try to reconstruct it from the dust of the ages, (laughs) you know, uh, rebuild the temple, reweave the priestly garments, rebreed the red heifer, reinstitute the endless flow of blood of innocent animals. I mean, it's it's like taking Jesus Christ and tromping on him in a drainage ditch. That's just my my crude analogy. All right, moving on here. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the summary of this uh, paragraph. Just as a as a as a teaser, since we don't have time to do the last paragraph. But in verse 26, he's making the case that Christ's sacrifice was perfect, and he only had to offer it once. If he was following the model of the Day of Atonement, where the priest had to go every year into the most holy place with innocent blood, it said Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the world's foundation over and over. But here we go, verse 26, but as it is, he has been made known once for all at the consummation of the ages. There's our word eon again. To do away with sin by his own sacrifice. So once he accomplished everything he needed to do in the first century, as this letter is being written, it's all being wrapped up. And so again, I, we have to feel sorry for our dispensational and Zionist friends who have placed all of their hopes in a still future coming of Christ because it doesn't jive at all with what this letter 
is telling us about the completeness of the sacrifice of Christ back then. So that's just a teaser for next time. Uh, thank you all Great. very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.